I've, I've not seen any food that is as healing, and I mean that word sincerely, healing for the human gut as raw milk. In this week's podcast, I had the honor of sitting with Mark McAfee on his farm, the largest raw dairy farm in the world in the Central Valley of California. I spent three days at Raw Farm there and learned all about their process of raising cattle on grass, how they milk them, how they care for the cattle, how they ensure that milk is as clean as possible, how they double test the milk. They are really setting the standard for raw milk in this country, and I hope it is something that can be scaled. And Mark has done an incredible job of educating raw milk producers all over the United States and even abroad into how to do this safely. As we talk about in this podcast, raw milk, I think raw dairy in general, whether it's yogurt, kefir, butter, truly raw cheese or milks, colostrum, have incredibly valuable roles for humans. And I think they've basically been overlooked. This is essentially, as I say in the podcast, like returning to breastfeeding, which is how your gut was programmed in the first place. So all of us have been exposed to bad things in our environments, whether it's antibiotics, pesticides, foods which damage our guts. And I think it makes sense to me intuitively that returning to raw milk would be helpful for these things. And we see this over and over. I was recently in Los Angeles doing a launch of the smoothie with Erewhon. You can find that at all the Erewhon stores in Los Angeles, the first animal-based smoothie ever. It includes the Raw Farms kefir that we talk about in this podcast. And so many people came up to me and talked about how raw milk, which is illegal in 37 states, has benefited them. So I'm so happy to share Mark's story. He has a wealth of information about raw milk, raw dairy, and its benefits for humans. You guys will really enjoy this podcast, and I hope that it adds fuel to the fire of the benefits of raw milk for humans because so many people are benefiting from this, and it's something I'm becoming more and more passionate about. Make milk raw again. We're gonna make hats that say that. Stay tuned for that. This podcast is free, and I'm happy to do it. Sponsors make this possible, so I'm thankful to them for sponsoring this podcast. I wanna start with Schwank Grills. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-K. If you guys have seen any of my What I Eat in a Day videos in Costa Rica, you've seen me cooking on my Schwenk grill. It is a fully stainless steel made in the United States grill with a ceramic element on top that heats up to 1500 degrees. This is steakhouse quality meat in the comfort of your own home. Basically, everyone that has come to my house and had a steak on this grill is interested and most of them buy one and they always send me text messages and say, that is the best investment I ever made. So. If you are cooking on a regular grill, there is an upgrade and this will improve the quality of your meat or whatever you want to grill. You can grill chicken, you can grill fish on there. You could even grill pizza. There's a pizza oven stone in there. I don't eat pizza, obviously. You could grow vegetables in there. Again, something I don't do, but you could. You could grow pineapple or fruit, whatever you wanna do. You can do it in the Schwenk grill. It's an incredible piece of machinery. I love this thing so much that I got one for the folks at Heart and Soil and I brought one to Costa Rica with me because they don't sell them here in Costa Rica. So for listeners of this podcast, Schwank is offering $150 off the Schwank 1500 degree grill at schwankgrills.com. When you use the promo code PAUL150, that's P-A-U-L-150 at checkout, that is schwankgrills.com, S-C-H-W-A-N-K grills.com. And the promo code is PAUL150. Earthrunners is another sponsor of this podcast. Thank you to them. So. I am a huge proponent of being connected with the earth. You guys may have heard me do a podcast with Clint Ober a few weeks ago about grounding. And ancestral ways are ways that include a significant amount of wisdom. It just makes so much sense that humans should be touching the earth. 
I love my earth runners. I love my grounded sandals. They're a minimalist design. So my foot gets all of this good movement that it needs to have. And they have a grounding plug and conductive laces so that when I'm walking around a city and I'm walking on grass, but I'm afraid I'm gonna cut myself on something in the grass or a sidewalk or a street or a pavement or any of these things, I can be grounded while wearing shoes. It increases the amount of time I'm grounded significantly, which I think is a good thing for humans. Grounding is a fascinating topic that I'm gonna dig into more. They have this ancestral design, the Hirache sandal design, which has been used by many traditional cultures. It stays on your foot really well. So Earth Runners are an incredible hack to have in your life to stay more grounded. You can find them at earthrunners.com. You can use the code carnivore at checkout for 10%. That's earthrunners.com. Use the code carnivore for 10% off your ancestral grounding sandals. They're incredible. Also wanna give a shout out to my friends at Bond Charge. That's bondcharge.com. And they are making all sorts of incredible things to help you navigate our, let's just say evolutionarily inconsistent world. They have blue light blocking glasses, which I use in airports when I'm on the planes. They have EMF blocking laptop pads. The laptop that I'm reading this information from right now is on a EMF blocking pad. I gave them to many of the members of my team who are working on laptops on their laps. Do not let your loved ones, your kids, your employees work with laptops in their lap. There's a significant amount of EMF radiation coming out of the bottom of that laptop and into their reproductive organs, which is probably not good for humans. So I think the laptop mat is one of my favorite things that Bond Charge makes. You can find all of their products at bondcharge.com and you can use the code CARNIVOREMD for 15% off. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com. Use the coupon code CARNIVOREMD for 15% off your order. On to the podcast. Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast. All the way, buddy. I think it's only appropriate that we start with cheers. Absolutely. Food of the ages. Food of the ages. What are we drinking? Kefir. Raw milk kefir. Incredibly diverse, complete, whole food. Fantastic for the gut. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Um, where are we right now? Where's this, where's this kefir made? On this dirt right here. This dirt right here? This dirt right here. Not too far away, about 500 feet out there, your cows are grazing on pastures, sun, sunshine. And that milk's milked every day, taken to our creamery, made into this product, and served the people of California. I got to go to the creamery yesterday and see how this, this kefir was made. And I saw, how, many, how big is that vat, Josh? 800-gallon <laughs> vat of raw milk. I got to see the whole process of the cows on the grass here. I was out there yesterday hanging out with the cows. I sat down. They came up to me and they were like licking me and biting my shirt. I got to see them move to the milking station. I want you to tell me about that. I know you've got a special milking barn that you designed. And then I got to see the creamery where this was made right. and the kefir, sort of the 800 gallon vat where it's heated to 76, like room temperature and then fermented. Yep. And then we're drinking this 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 incredible food. Yeah. Um, just before we started the podcast, you told me this is like, there's history with this. Yes. It goes back thousands and thousands of years. If you think about it, the Maasai, the Mongolians, Europeans, everybody around the world was milking cows, sheep, horses, reindeer, camels, water buffalo. If you could find a mammal... You had grass and sunshine. You had food today. And so raw milk kefir was a natural outgrowth of that because if you think about it, the container that the person 
that was milking the cow or whatever animal, mammal, uh, wasn't clean. It, came, it had residues from the milk prior week. And those were the local cultures, the dirt, the bacteria from that local cultures. And that milk that came out of that cow or whatever mammal went into that, that, uh, that vessel, became cultured immediately. And within a few hours, literally within six to 10 hours, it became a kefir. So kefir has a very long shelf life. It's a low, low acid, 3.8, 3.7 on the pH scale. And it's extremely complex with all this diversity of bacteria. And it lasts a long time without refrigeration because it's born of becoming warm after you milk the cow into this vessel with bacteria. Now, in modern day kefir, we're not able to make it that way, but we add in 12 additional cultures on top of the hundreds that are there already. So it's an incredibly nutritionally dense whole food that's fantastic for the gut microbiome. Fantastic. Now, I've heard people say to me, you know, when I grew up, I drank pasteurized milk exclusively, yeah. yep. unfortunately. Yep. Sorry, yep. mom and dad. <laughs> uh, we, should, we can talk about why I'm so bummed about that. And when, when pasteurized milk spoils, it smells bad. It putrefies. It putrefies. It doesn't have the commensal, mutualistic diversity of good bacteria, which help ferment the milk. But it's got survivors from the killing process. And those survivors are pretty tough little buggers. And they don't taste very good when they get old. And so it's not intended to be consumed after it ferments. It doesn't ferment. It putrefies. It's really not intended to be consumed at all once it's killed. We've talked about that. We both agree well, on that. Well, I think we should talk about why pasteurization began. Yeah. It really resolves yeah. a lot of questions in yeah. people's minds. When America was first settled, let's just talk the American story. There were cows everywhere. Every other dairy, every other farm had a dairy. It was two to three cows all over the place. Farmers, 98% of the population. Well, that was in the 14, 15, well, 1500s going to the 1600s and then 1700s. But the earliest settlers always had a cow. In fact, the pilgrims all went back to Europe before the arrival of the first cows. It was really part of Jamestown. It was part of foundation of America that we had cows and we had milk, and we had cheese, and butter, and cream, and those kinds of things. But remember, we had green pastures, we had clean water, lots of virgin soils, lots of space. Well, in the late 1800s, that changed, because people started moving to the cities, and they needed their milk. They brought their cows with them. When they brought their cows into the city, there was no green grass, there was no clean water, no flushing toilets, nothing to chill the milk, no clear, clean water to, to wash things with. And as a result, there was something called the milk problem from the 1860s to 1890s. People died left and right from raw milk in the downtown city areas. In the countryside, that milk was going to the Mayo Clinic to heal people. So you had two different kinds of milk, the natural clean stuff that was in natural conditions, conditions really mattered, or the filthy stuff being commercialized to feed people that were needing food in the cities. And they were eating brewers, distillers, grains, and ah, it's just typhoid, tuberculosis, brucellosis, I mean, it's disgusting. And so in 1893, a guy by the name of Strauss brought in the parboiler from France, started cooking this stuff. And said, oh, a miracle. We cooked this stuff and fewer people die. Still had 10% of the people dying because the water quality was so terrible. At the same time, also, Dr. Henry Coit, who was a pediatrician in 1893, who had lost a child from consuming really tainted, ugly raw milk, said, let's just clean up the milk because he saw virtue in clean raw milk. And he started certifying raw milk with the board of physicians who would go visit a farm in the countryside that had clean conditions and grass and sunshine and clean water. And that milk was literally going to the Mayo Clinic. So there's been a diversity of these diverse paths of raw milk for two different intentions, one for the processor 
and one for people. That's incredible. I had no idea that raw milk was being used at the Mayo Clinic. Absolutely. Dr. Crew talked about that at length in his book. Really? Yeah. And do you know what it was being used to treat? Everything? I am under injunction by the FDA to not be able to say anything about curing or healing <laughs> from raw milk. Literally, personally under an injunction right. because to say anything about raw milk that says it heals or cures is to create a new drug in America under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which is really, in my opinion, a disservice to our country because to prevent disease is truly very, very important. To prevent disease through good nutrition. Right. Um, so there is a, just a massive list of benefits of raw milk in PubMed uh, that are mostly European studies coming out of Germany and, and Netherlands uh, by a bunch of researchers who I know. And I met with many of them that talk about all kinds of wonderful things that raw milk does um, in the gut as well as the immune system. And I really can't get into specifics. You can. I gave you all the PubMed stuff. But I can't have it come out of my mouth. But I'm telling you right now, we have reports all over the place all the time about how fantastic raw milk is to build your health. And those PubMed articles, for anybody who wants to Google them, they can look at them. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes for this episode. It's the British Columbia Herd Share website, right? Yep. And that was where I found the best list of raw milk articles. There were a few that I was aware of before this podcast, and I've gotten turned on to raw milk in the last, I would say, year, year and a half. I was living in Costa Rica, and for, for a while there, I wasn't even drinking milk. And I've recently reincorporated raw milk in my diet in the last year or so, year and a half. Yeah. And it's been goat milk, I've had some camel milk, and I've had some cow's milk. And I found it to be very enjoyable, very health-promoting in myself. I just got back from Los Angeles. We're, we're at the farm. We're at Raw Farm right now in California. And I, pre previous to this, I was in Los Angeles at Erewhon doing a launch yeah. of the smoothie yeah. that I did a collab with Erewhon. And I, there were, I probably met 300 plus people in a day yep. at these meet and greets. And I must have met 50 plus people who came up to me and told me that raw milk you know, versus pasteurized milk had significantly improved gut issues, whether it was Crohn's or IBD or eczema, uh, their kids' issues, and that was really cool. But then, you know, as we've been hanging out here on the farm, and thank you for hosting me the last day and a half, it's been, I've learned so much it's from you. It's been our honor. It's, it's been, been really cool to see it all. Um, I, I was looking through a lot of these studies, and I'd previously spoken about the Gabriella study, yep. which is basically an observational study looking at kids who grow up on or off farms. Not just a few. We're talking... Thousands of children yes, in the yes, study yes. in Europe. Yes, thousands yep. of ch children in that study who grew up on or off farms and have lower rates of asthma, eczema, and hay fever allergies. And that is strongly associated with the consumption of raw milk. And that sort of finding, the lower incidence of asthma, eczema, and allergies, which are all this kind of atopic spectrum, is consistently found in the literature. At that British Columbia Herdshare website, I found probably 10 plus references to that. And then you go deeper in the literature. There are interventional studies, and I'm just rambling because sure. because I, I love can this say, because I can stuff. say it, I can talk about it, and I want the audience to know this evidence is out there. Um, I don't mean to uh, to talk over you, but no, no. there there are there's there's an interventional study in humans, which is a 12 week study done with 24 people, where these people were living. I think they were living on a farm and drinking raw milk every day, and they looked at the microbiome of these people. And they saw increased microbial diversity, which is generally associated with increased gut health, quote unquote. And decreased inflammation. Yes. And they saw increased levels of short chain fatty acids like valerate in the gut from one intervention, which was drinking raw milk. And then there are other studies suggesting that fermented milk products increase glucose tolerance or improve glucose tolerance 
that's essentially saying that they improve diabetes or prediabetes by lessening insulin resistance. So the literature is vast. And then there's multiple studies looking at very technical specific markers of T cell and immune function. Um, they call it, I think it's Fox uh, OP3, or I can find the actual genetic um, loci that they talk about. But they talk about T cell maturation being affected by raw milk. And you think, okay, this is really, I can say this, but this is the kind of thing that the FDA won't let a raw milk farmer say. This right. is a medical food. It is. And, yeah. and uh, but it doesn't even, I think medical food is not even the right You know what? We can term. find a bit, a bridge of peace here with the FDA. You <laughs> okay. know where it is? Is anybody having that? What's the bridge of peace? The bridge of peace is mammalian raw milk from humans. Yeah. Breastfeeding. Yeah. They have a list that goes on and on. The USDA starts the food pyramid talk on their USDA uh, recommended food guidelines by breastfeeding. Please breastfeed your babies. The benefits are fantastic. Well, guess what? Humans are mammals. We are described, defined by the fact that we lactate and breastfeed our young. That's what mammalian means. Mammals means you lactate and you, 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 you breastfeed your babies. Decreases my sicknesses and my child's sicknesses. Check out this review on our grass-fed colostrum from Hardened Soil Supplements, also known as Immunomilk, something we talk about in this podcast. Jennifer says, this seriously helps. I take them when I feel like I'm coming down with something, and I have a one-year-old in daycare that was getting sick constantly. My one-year-old would come home with sniffles, and I would take these, and it significantly improved the amount of time that I was out sick. I definitely recommend this product. I've even started giving it to my one-year-old in a smaller dose, and it seems to have improved their health and decreased their incidence of sickness as well. As we talk about in this podcast with Mark, colostrum, which is the first milk from cows, there's plenty for the calves, but the extra is used to freeze dry into our grass-fed colostrum at hardened soil, is an incredibly powerful supplement for humans, even in moderate doses. There are peptides like colostrin, which have been shown to decrease respiratory illnesses in children and improve recovery from sickness. And there are peptides in colostrum that can help with muscle recovery, exercise soreness, and overall immune function. So I think colostrum is gaining traction in the health space now, and it should be because it's an incredibly powerful first food for mammals, and humans definitely benefit from colostrum from cows. As we talk about in this podcast, there's a lot of overlap between mammalian milks and the benefits of those. So check out our grass-fed colostrum at heartandsoil.co. Our mission there is to help you reclaim your birthright to radical, optimal health. Well, cows, goats, sheep, horses, camels, reindeer, all the other mammals, very, very similar in their raw milk structures to humans. Very similar. So this, this no argument whatsoever from the FDA, USDA, World Health Organization, every physician in the world says breastfeed your babies. It's fantastic because it does all these wonderful things. Guess what? Take that, rubber stamp it on other mammals' milk that comes to you, except for maybe a couple things, like specific antibodies that mom may give to baby. But everything else is very similar. So it's, it, it's, it's a bridge of peace, but it's the same. It's a bridge of war. Because why? If you can make raw milk safe, which is what we do here at Raw Farm, because we do all this advanced testing and wonderful things that use FDA-approved technologies that are rapid, cheap, inexpensive, and accurate to make sure you don't have pathogens in the milk. So the normal people that don't have a really robust immune system can drink it and thrive. And you get that point of, so it's really a, a weird place where I have to be where I can't really speak directly to it, but I can talk indirectly through breast milk. And that's really a powerful thing. Yeah, I mean, there's some kind of funny, there's some kind of funny memes going around now on social media about humans drinking breast milk in adulthood. And uh, I don't know. Like yeah, one of my friends kind of talks about that on his social media. 
I mean, I've, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think if somebody handed me a glass of human breast milk, I would try it. I'd do it in a second. I would try it. Absolutely. When my kids were being breastfed, my wife and I were in the shower. I got sprayed all the time with milk. <laughs> and I tell you what, I had some. It was delicious. Let me tell you, it was I, great. I think it's a nutritive food for humans. <laughs> and I'm actually, I'm kind of surprised that maybe the pharmaceutical companies wouldn't be so excited about this, but I'm kind of surprised that there's no therapy for humans that's made from human breast milk. I think that would be a very powerful gut therapy. But thankfully, this is an interesting point. You that can't you bring patent up. breast milk, though. Yeah, that's true. There's no you money in it. You can't process it either. There's no money in it. No, no money in it. But this is an interesting point because I think that when I talk to people about raw milk, their first question is, is it safe to drink? Why is it illegal? Right. You addressed that a little bit, and I thank you for telling that history, which is really kind of the genesis or the beginning of why it was pasteurized. So important. Yeah. And the other thing they say is, why would I drink milk from a cow? Yeah. And we're going to address the first question even more later in this podcast because I've seen how you make this. Yeah. And I've seen, I mean, yesterday I got to go down to the milking barn and I got to see those cows going through the showers and, mm. and how their udders are cleaned multiple times. And I got to see how clean those udders are when they're milked. And I know all of your testing processes. I want to get into all of that safety stuff in a moment. Right. But let's, let's dig in a little deeper about this, I guess, homology between cow's milk and human milk. Because I think the other response people have is, why would I drink milk from a cow? I'm yeah. human. Cow's milk is for baby cows. But what I've seen in the literature, like I just enumerated, is that there are so many studies that show benefits to drinking multiple other mammalian species milks, camel milk. <clears throat> so I think there's support in the literature for drinking milk across species throughout the lifespan. I think there's a couple things to touch on. And this really goes deep, but it really goes directly to the subject matter. For the last 14 years, I've attended the International Milk Genomics Consortium conferences. And these are conferences supported by dollars from dairies, my neighbor's dairies that pasteurize their milk, to try to research milk and understand it more. Unfortunately, I'm the only farmer that attends those meetings, along with 120, 130 PhDs that study milk. I'll be going to, our, uh, to uh, uh, Ireland in about six weeks to attend my 14th. And I'll be the only farmer there. There may be one that sneaks in, but I'll be the only farmer there listening and reporting back to our raw milk producers about the benefits of this. What's really, really interesting, if you dig deep into the science of the genomics of milk, you look at the history of mankind with domesticated animals, and then you look at the most recent information, which is powerful, about the human genome and the contribution of bacterial DNA to complete our genome. Mm. Think about your iPhone. It sits there really stupid without apps. That's the hardware. That's the electricity, the format, the channels the electricity goes through. But without the software, it doesn't function or do anything for you. You have to get the app for it, right? Well, the app for our bodies is bacterial diversity. And so you look at the human genome, and you look at the work that Donnie, uh, Bonnie Basler has done and the MIT and Princeton and, and the, the Department of Energy when they looked at what we were genetically as humans. Yeah, we got 23,000 genes from mom and dad that makes us look like you and I. But to complete our genome, we've got billions of trillions of bacteria in its diversity that contribute at the cellular level, communicating, saying, hey, idiot, do this because you're stupid without me. So bacteria, we are Bacterial, uh, we're bacterial sapiens, you know, we really, really are. Bacterial sapiens. And so we have to embrace bacteria. The whole entire ecosystem of the world is bathed in bacteria. It's the first food of life on Earth. I mean, I'm, it's the first organism on life was, was the archaea bacteria. And it's still in our gut today, by the way. The archaea bacteria is phenomenal. And so you really, really need to not get rid of bacteria, but embrace the good. And this is not only good bacteria, but the food that feeds it. So... If you look at that, why are cross-species consumption of raw milk? 
domestication of raw milk has contributed to our genome for 10 or 15,000 years because we cohabitated so closely with these animals, but they're not foreign to us. They may be becoming more and more foreign because we're so separate now for the last 100 years or so, we've started to separate ourselves. But for so long, the genome of the two species or, the, or whatever species we were cohabitating in domesticated you know, closeness, we actually have so much of the genome shared with the animals around us, genetically as humans. So that's my answer to that. In fact, we forget the fact that just a few generations ago, we were starving and yes. we needed food. Yes. And you know what? This is whole food and it was there. We had an animal, we had sunshine and water and grass. We were good to go. That's my answer to that one. I love it. And I saw that when I was in Africa. You know, I went to live with, uh, I went to spend time and hunt with the Hadza. And they're a hunter-gatherer culture. Yeah. And they, they haven't done animal husbandry. They don't have animals for milk. But their neighbors, the, the Maasai, Maasai. Maasai and the Dakota, uh, uh, I think it's the, the Datoga, Datoga, excuse me, um, they have domesticated animals. And they have goats and cows. And they're always getting raw milk. The Maasai are famously known for drinking raw milk with blood, something that I've tried. It's, it's really good. We haven't had any raw milk with blood on this trip, but uh, maybe the next time we go to Africa. But I, I, there is so much like, symbiotic, so much of a symbiotic relationship, so much of a parallel relationship between our historical humanness, yes. uh, our, our evolution as humans and animals over the last 10 to 15,000 years. And then you mentioned archaea. I mean, that, that type of bacteria, I believe, is also in every cell in our body as a mitochondria. I don't know that, but I do know that in our gut microbiome, it is there. It's foundational. Yeah. And it was literally at the lineage. You look at the way our species and all the genealogy where it comes from, it comes from the core. It's the beginning. And it's still in our bodies today. By the way, they're injured a little bit by antibiotics. So we got to be careful with what we do with antibiotics. I think we have to be very careful what we do with antibiotics. Resistance and stuff, yeah. Because yeah. the first form of life on Earth is bacteria. And it adjusts and overcomes challenges, right? You attack it. Well, you may kill a bunch of them, but one's going to survive. It's going to be the super bacteria that no longer is killed by antibiotics. So we've got to be very cautious about what we kill because we're going to have survivors that are super that aren't going to be able to, you know, be, be killed. And we don't want to kill bacteria. We want to support the good. This is such an important point, And it kind of gets back to this germ theory and terrain theory, yes. which is, has been, I think, a concepts that are misconstrued. But I'll, I'll just briefly talk about my concept of this. It's the idea, when I was in medical school, people, you know, the, the sort of medical paradigm was that there was a lot of fear around MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, right. or vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. There was a lot of talk of superbugs, and there was a lot of work in the hospital to keep things clear of these bugs. And I think that's fine. But generally, those efforts were, were mostly futile because bacteria are there no matter what we do. And I, I don't think Western medicine has really fully embraced the concept that you it's very difficult to get rid of bacteria. The way to balance things on the human skin or in our guts is not to get rid of bacteria, it's to support the ones that will outcompete the bad. That's right. And that's the most important thing, that's that right. it's really, that's more of a terrain model. Yep. With regard to virulent organisms, the idea that it's the, the health of the host that determines how susceptible we will be to a MRSA, to a VRE, I am 100% sure that I was exposed to methicillin-resistant Staph aureus in medical school and residency, but I never had a problem with it. If you take it to the next level, how do you encourage good bacteria? Right. You feed them properly. Food feeds good bacteria. Um, bad foods feed bad bacteria. And the competitive balance between them is, is based on whole food nutrition. If you start throwing in things with preservatives, GMO with Roundup Ready stuff that's a toxic antibiotic, um, sterile foods that don't contribute, antibiotics for sure. So long shelf life is the opposite of what you need for gut life. 
And our industrial paradigm is made basically cheap foods, long shelf life. We're the MRE type. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not what we want. We, we don't need, we don't want, we shouldn't have in our bodies not having the right inoculum of good bacteria and not having the food to feed the good bacteria and then suppressing good bacteria by encouraging the growth of bad bacteria. Right. And that's done by these behaviors we have, which is a sugar, high levels of sugar screw up the gut with yeast formation and so on and so forth. Um, and then, you know, the food that we have, the whole food nutrition actually supports good bacteria. That's the way you encourage that population to balance. Yeah, I love that. There's so much information in food that I think is far beyond our comprehension. <laughs> Nutritional science and Western medicine in general wants to be reductionist. Yeah. And we just want to look at a food like this, like a raw milk fermented kefir and think, I can, I can be reductionist. I can pull the good things out of this. And I think that is such a misguided perspective because when I look totally at this, agree. I see nearly infinite complexity. It is infinite. It, it's, it's infinite. You've defined infinite with raw milk. It, it, and it especially is. with kefir. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's nearly infinite complexity. You would need, you know, machine learning models to understand the complexity of the human gut when there's 40 to 60% dark matter in the gut, meaning that we don't even understand what 40 to 60% of the species in the gut are doing. And then you look at a food like this that is natural, quote unquote, yes, but this is information that is so evolutionarily consistent for humans. And I'll just add this, that in talking to all of these people and in what I've seen working with you know, raw milk and being interested in the last year, they, this is gonna sound, I think, overly simplified, but it's, it's entirely true. I've, I've not seen any food that is as healing, and I mean that word sincerely, healing for the human gut as raw milk. But let's here. let's let's really drive on that. Yeah. Healing for. That means there was damage before you're resurrecting, recovering, yeah. healing, making things better. What is the role of raw milk? It's the first food of life. A baby's born without a digestive tract that's fully formed. Doesn't make its own enzymes, doesn't have bacterial diversity, the, the mucosal lining's not there. What creates it? Yeah. What is the worker bees? What's the what's the stuff that goes in there to make that happen? Colostrum, breast milk. Those are raw milks, the infinite matrix of life. And that's why it's so healing is because that's what built it to start with. That's such an important thing that people need to understand. If you understand the beginning of life, you understand what builds it and, and reinforces it, and protects it, and nourishes it and directs it. You really understand what can correct it later and help redirect it back into its normal course when it's screwed up. I tell you, that's so important to understand birthing, C-section, breastfeeding, vaginal birth, uh, health of the mom, health of the dad, uh, hisses, hugs, all that biosphere stuff yes. around the baby, bathing, not bathing, vaccination, all that stuff and the impacts on it. So critical to understanding how do you recover later when you've got things messed up because that's how you built it to begin with. I mean, I wonder in some ways if, you know, we go through lives, like you said, we get colostrum from our moms. The, the baby calves get colostrum from the cows here. Yep. And we got to see some of the baby calves, you know, that we saw the, the pregnant cow mothers who are gonna give birth in the next week or so over there. And we got to see a few baby calves. and um, We got to see the calves milking with the colostrum. But, and, and then at some point in our lives, our guts almost invariably get messed up. I mean, we all, I don't think many of us get through completely safely. I took antibiotics as an, as an adult, as a child. Yeah. Um, in, in some ways, I think that maybe, maybe raw milk from mammals, whether it's cows or goats or horses or, you know, who knows, um, is a return to breastfeeding for us. You know, this, it makes sense. Just philosophically, I'm just kind of exploring this. If you return to that first food, it would make sense intuitively that this would be a great way to heal your gut. 
Can we talk a little bit about colostrum? I think you're absolutely right on yeah. with that, Doc. Doc, you just nailed it in terms of really returning to the foundational food that started your gut to right. begin with. Right. Why not go back to the building blocks that started it all? Right. And yeah. I've seen that. I've seen that anecdotally. An anecdote is valuable. Uh, it's not a double-blind research, you know, blinded, uh, you know, randomized controlled trial, but I've seen it. I've seen people come up to me so many times and say they had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, dysbiosis of some sort, and, and raw milk was really the thing because I have seen people run round and round, Mark, trying to fix SIBO, and they do herbal antibiotics. They do over-the-counter probiotics, which are not as complex as this in any way, shape, or form. There's no food to feed the probiotic in the, in the over-counter. And, and, I mean, and the complexity of this is infinitely you know, greater. And then they return to raw milk, and they, and they say, I'm pretty sure it was the raw milk that, that was the thing that ultimately fixed their small intestinal bacteria. Raw, raw milk, according to the International Milk Genomics people, raw milk does three things. Protects, nourishes, and directs. When the baby is left, the mama's uh, belly and birth, birth canal and the umbilical cord is cut, there's no longer a direct connection to mom. But the milk from the breast continues that connection through all kinds of interesting things, protecting, nourishing, and directing. Really powerful. It's, no longer, it, it's not like the baby's separate. It's very much a couplet to the mom, right, right. but it's connected to the breast and what's going on. And it's a two-way relationship where the baby expresses a saliva onto the, to the nipple. The nipple in, 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 the, in the, the canal and in the, in, the, in the breast actually says, that baby needs antibodies to this particular bacteria, which it's having a little tough time with. Creates antibodies in the mom, expresses it in the milk to the baby. So it goes back and forth. Wow. And so protection, direction, nutrition, all those things, pretty powerful. And if you want to correct something later in life where you got things messed up, go back to that. Yeah. It's really a, a powerful thing. And, and kefir is that plus so much more because the bacterial populations are just huge versus fairly low populations coming from Rama from mom. I want to talk about the kefir in a moment, but let's talk about colostrum because that's yeah. the first one. Yeah. Right? So what is colostrum? It's not milk. Okay. It does not. Milk comes from the lacteal gland uh-huh. uh, inside of the mammal. Lacteal glands lactate. They create milk. Colostrum is before that. It's actually a collection of the antibodies in the serums from blood that circulates through circulates the body that then collects. And there's only so much so much that's made, and it's expressed out through the breast. It looks like it might be milk, but it's kind of whitish, yellow, sticky, creamy, fatty material that's coming from the blood system of mom. Mm. And that transfers the antibodies and the immune system to the baby that doesn't have one yet or has very little. And as a result, that first is so important because the leaky gut in the newborn seals up just like calves. And so you absorb that and gets right in the bloodstream. And then the milk comes in and you start establishing the microbiome and you actually have the immune system proper, which is the gut, uh, 80% of the immune systems in the gut. That's the largest immune system organ of the body yes. is the gut, right? Yes. And how long does the colostrum last? At least in cows. Uh, just a few days. A few days. And then uh, they move into four the Four to six, eight, seven days. You'll start high volume of it, and then it becomes less and less. Mm-hmm. And you see just a little bit of it, five or six days. Mm-hmm. And then the milk comes And in. the milk comes on hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, if people are curious about this, and this goes back to what we were saying previously about the benefits of raw milk across species, there are peptides in bovine colostrum. Mm-hmm. One of them is called colostrin. And peptides are small protein molecules, less than 50 amino acids, that have been studied in all sorts of conditions and Mm -hmm. found to be beneficial for humans. Uh, I know of one study specifically looking at Alzheimer's disease and the benefits of colostrin from colostrum in Alzheimer's disease and, um, you know, I guess the decline of mental capacities in humans. 
There are uh, many other studies. I think there are hundreds, if not over 1,000 studies on colostrum from cows being beneficial in humans at the level of the immune system, yep. at the level of respiratory tract infections, which is something that raw milk has also been shown benefit uh, Powerfully, from, powerfully you know, so. In, in kids, uh, at the level of the gut microbiome, at the level of, you said, leaky gut, at the level of gut damage. So yep. colostrum, very beneficial for humans uh, from cows or other animals. And then the raw milk is also beneficial. So yep. Yep. it's really, it's just a really incredible food. So why don't you just describe what happens here on the farm? So this is apparently, we are in a Guinness Book of World Records location here. <laughs> I've heard, I believe, this is the largest raw farm on the planet. This is the largest raw milk dairy in the world on Mother Nature's Earth, right here. And it was formed 23 years ago um, as an outgrowth of my paramedic experience. It's, you know, being a paramedic can be a pretty intense kind of thing. You're seeing people the worst times of their lives, dialing 911 saying, help me, I'm gonna die, right? And you can see the diversity of emergencies, asthma, allergies, uh, gut problems, cardiac arrest, drowning, shooting, stabbings, rape, you name it, we saw it in 17 years, about 15,000 paramedic calls. So I was kind of emotionally exhausted after that, and that was 23 years ago. I'm 62 now, but from when I was 21 years old, first certified as a paramedic, all the way through 36, 37, I practiced as a paramedic. I taught paramedic medicine. So from that experience, I learned that it's really important to get down on the knee and touch people and say, you're going to be okay. I'm here yeah. to help you. You know what I mean? And touch people. Well, I didn't lose that as a farmer when my, I retired and my grandparents had a thousand acres of ground out here and said, it's yours. And they passed away. And my brothers didn't want to farm. I said, you know what? I want to touch people with our food. Wow. And I, 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 wanna, I don't want to be serving a processor. I want to serve people. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I didn't need to do that. And I started visiting farmer's markets, started listing people. And I did not know that Altadena, that big, big dairy in Los Angeles, had just sold the Dean's food in Suiza. And they produced raw milk for 40 years. And I did not know that in 1999, they had actually closed their doors in, in serving raw milk. So there was a big vacuum created yeah. that people in LA wanted their raw milk. And they were the last certified raw milk from 1893 that Dr. Uh, Coit had done. Uh -huh. They were the last certified dairy in the world to operate. So here I come, I'm born as a, a dairy farming operation into that vacuum. And I just had to listen. And I, the people were saying, we want your milk raw. I said, tell me why. And I started listening, I started researching. And um, we started, we started doing that. And my wife and I initially packed up a bunch of uh, ice chests in the back of our suburban, drove to LA, went to a little place called The Garage with James Stewart in Venice Beach. And we drove into that, uh, that little alley in the back streets of Venice Beach in LA and the garage was open and there was a hundred people standing there saying, thank you, thank you for coming. And I couldn't even get out of the car and people were grabbing milk and putting 10 and $20 bills in the car and just saying, thank you, come back next week. And they told me all these wonderful things that they needed raw milk for in their lives that they'd missed for six months because Altadena was gone. And I looked at my wife and I said, We've got to do something about this. What the heck is all this about? And it was an awakening. So on the three-hour drive back home, I contacted my son. I said, let's build a small creamery. Let's get a permit. Let's get it going. And we actually were in Whole Foods in 90 days. 90 days? 90 days. They said, how fast can you drive down here? We need that product in our stores now. People are crying for it. Wow. That's how fast it was. We started distributing and a million-dollar market the first year. And it's one of those things where serving people, serving humanity, and listening to humanity super purpose-filled kind of thing. And it, it really, it begets goodness. 
And that is really what we do here is we serve humanity. And we also share what we've learned in raw milk, the technologies and practices and standards through the raw milk Institute. We've trained farmers, thousands of farmers nationally and internationally in Canada, uh, Europe, uh, all over the place with these standards so that other people can uh, you know, have it. It's not just selfishly for us, but it's everybody can share in this. So it's really been an act of purpose and passion. It's exciting. It's, it's good to see the next generation excited about it, taking over and do things. Um, but I tell you what, the most reinforcing thing I get is feedback from people that say, this is right on. I love it. It's so cool. I mean, it's almost, it's moving to hear you talk about that. It's, just, it's moving to me. It's hard to talk sometimes. I get emotionally upset it, by it. I just, I think that the, the desire and the response you get from people is clear evidence and validation of the benefit of this food for humans. 100%. And when I think about that in contradistinction to the way that raw milk is characterized in the mainstream. Well, let's give credit to that for a second. Remember that divergent road? Right. Raw milk for people, raw milk for the processor. There's a whole set of standards over here set up for processor standards. They never test for pathogens. In fact, 25 to 35% of the time, the PubMed says that milk has pathogens. So when the FDA says, don't drink that milk, they're saying that milk. They're not acknowledging our milk. And they're correct. You probably wouldn't want to if you have a weakened immune system. I, I agree with them on that. But I am hope that in the next few years, the FDA will start to acknowledge state of California standards and other states that produce raw right. milk, the standards for human consumption, because the data is very clear. PubMed data shows that it's remarkably safe. We don't find pathogens in it because we don't ever commingle it with my neighbor's milk. It's my milk. I take personal responsibility. For it. You've seen the, the kinds of practices in the udder, clean udder, healthy cows, rapid chilling. Those kinds of practices result in very, very low risk of milk, safe milk. Yeah. And so that's the story. Unfortunately, the one that's echoed in the echo chamber, the one that's politically expedient, the one that preserved the, uh, the, the, the retail market shelf and the processor's interest is that milk that's dirty. And we're not talking about that milk. We're talking about the milk that's really clean, intact, fully, uh, all the proteins and enzymes and bacteria and everything are intact, unprocessed whole directly from cows that are healthy. So it's, it's, that's the story. It's like, what standards are you talking about? Exactly, completely different products. Totally. We drove by... So we went to the creamery yesterday, and on the way back, we drove by a, I don't know if I would say mainstream, quote unquote, yeah, conventional, uh, dairy. Da yeah. conventional dairy farm. And it looked nothing like this. We'll put some B-roll in here. But sure. you know, I look out, I see green grass. <clears throat> I want you to talk about the milking barn. Yeah. Um, but it was all dirt. Uh, I don't think those cows are fed any grass, maybe a little hay. And I, I, my, I was told that they're, they're pretty much milked by robots. Well, they are. In fact, my neighbor down the street here has a, a beautiful robotic milking machine. And it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's a state-of-the-art fantastic thing. It's not good. It's not bad. What it is, it's different. It's for it serves a different process. It serves a different master. Right. It gets paid differently. They don't have people coming to visit them saying, I want your milk raw. They have uh, maybe a science student that might come and say, how that robot work? But they don't have people coming in saying, I want to see where milk comes from that I feed my children with emotion in their faces about how compelled they are. So really, I, I'm, I'm the, the vice president of the California Dairy Campaign, and I'm the only raw guy in the room. There's a couple of organic guys, but most of them are all conventional. And they suffer. They work their butts off for low milk prices and these loose standards. And they're, they're, it's a hell of a problem they're having because as hard as they work, they still can't catch up. Where we're able to set our own milk prices because we have innate value to the milk because of the care 
consideration, the testing, the conditions for our cows brings value to the farmer and the consumer. Think about this for a second. One of the world, one of the nation's highest suicide rates. Now you're a psychiatrist. Think about this for a second. You're on the farm. You don't ever see anybody. The only people you see are bill collectors. Your balance in your checking account is rarely above zero, sometimes under, most of the time under. Bankruptcies, very high rate. You're the generation that's going to fail because your grandparents suffered through it and your parents did. And you're a guy that's going to not make it. And you never get anybody that comes says hi or thank you. You can't set your milk prices. You're on a roller coaster from hell on this, this milk price thing versus the farmer that has sustainable pay, a hug and kiss from moms that come and say, thank you so much. Do more of what you're doing. It's fantastic. Can I tour my kids? Entirely different psychological, emotional perspective. Super high suicide rates and bankruptcies versus sustainable, thriving, happy. And that's just not my story. That's the story of every raw milk producer I know in North America. So it's a paradigm of goodness. It really, really is raw goodness for the farmer and the consumer. I mean, yeah. I mean, your farm, other farms that are doing raw milk. These are, these are. This is like a spiritual experience. For yeah. I mean, this is creating, this is creating life-giving food for humans in a way that's that's very unique. Because, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday as we were on the farm recording some content. Raw milk cannot be sold in stores in 37 states. Or something, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's only 13 states. I mean, this is a food that is clearly beneficial for humans. There are so many studies to show this. And that can be produced, and you are really the innovator here. I'm sure there are other raw farms that do it well, but you know I've seen yours, and I think it's fair of me to say that what you're doing here sets the standard for cleanliness um, and, and, and safety with regard to raw milk. And see, so you and other raw farms that maybe you even spoken to or taught are showing that it can be done safely. Correct. And yet, the majority of places in the United States, humans do not have access to this food, or they need to go to a farm, which is inconvenient for them. They can't just get it in store, or they need to know someone, or they need to jump through all sorts of hoops, or some places you can't get it at all because of these sort of anachronisms from over 100 years ago in terms of safety. A short little story I think tells it all. Iowa, we at Rommel Institute trained a farmer there. Her name was Esther, wonderful young gal who developed a raw milk farm and selling through cow shares because raw milk in Iowa is completely illegal. Mm -hmm. But she was having a cow share, which means that she boards animals and she does, gets paid for, comp compensated for doing the work to support the animals. People come get their milk from their own cow. Anyway, she was frustrated by that. She got a hold of the legislature and she started working hard last year and she got the bill, a bill ch to, to change the law. So now raw milk is legal in Iowa. Okay. What happened in Iowa is very interesting. The ag extension was asked to do supportive work to train the farmers. And they asked me to put together a slide deck to explain the new standards because they used Raw Milk Institute standards in Iowa, which was going to really be awesome to have safe, clean raw milk. They had been getting a lot of phone calls from farmers saying, my milk prices are low and I could make more money on raw milk. I was scared to death at saying, no, this is not the same practices. We had to train the farmers. Well, the Ag Extension got, reached out to me and I had a really good talk with them. They said, we're going to bring you in as an expert to train these farmers on how to do raw milk properly. I presented my slide deck to them, about 20 slides. They said, there's no way you can give those slide decks. We, we can't support that. We can't give any nutritional benefits to raw milk. We can't even, even though it's all PubMed, uh, we can't compare raw milk for pasteurization. Raw milk. We, oh, no, no. They canceled the presentation I was supposed to speak at because of the fact it was so disruptive that the paradigm shift that had been voted in in their legislature when it came to the real grassroots of the market jealousy of the processors that didn't want to see the farmers well-trained. One of the things that shocked me the most was, we would never want the farmers to have their own on-farm lab. And we, all of our, the raw milk dairymen, 
most of them have a lawn farm lab to check to see how clean their milk is, to know all the time what's going on. They didn't want to have their farmers so enlightened and empowered. So there's a lot of learning that needs to take place, and we're continuing to work with the ag extension there. But the bottom line is, it's real. The fact that the paradigm that's been indoctrinated has political inertia behind it and protectionism and all kinds of stuff. And unfortunately, the farmers are suffering and the consumers are suffering. In our situation, the farmers aren't suffering. They're thriving. And the consumers are doing extremely well. So we got a lot of work to do. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you have an engineering background? I mean, I walk around this farm, <laughs> and your daughter was showing me the farm. There are so many things on this farm that you have innovated. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a machine over there that you built that... Well, my first job out of high school, I was a, I was a commercial welder in a mine. Okay. So I have a shade tree mechanic of so, sorts, and I, I, built, I built this hangar. I built this... <laughs> this door was sitting there. That's, this, all this welding here, all this engineering, that's me. So I just reverse engineer everything I see. I just build it a little stronger because I don't want it to break. And I don't know the numbers. So I just build everything twice as big and it's all good. And this milk barn, this is, this is the only milk barn. Of I didn't kind. build that, but I designed it. But you designed it. Yes. So tell people about the milk barn because this, I think, is it's kind of the beginning of the intentionality of the process here at Raw Farm. Right. And I think this, I mean, based on what I've seen, that's, that's a key component of how this milk here is so special. It's not perfect, but it's darn good. Uh-huh. Uh, there's more improvements we'll make in the future, but it r- works really, really well. We operated another barn for 17 years here, and it, it didn't really do a good job. Of It was more of a conventional type barn. Mm-hmm. It had some other issues. But um, we designed, after 17 years, the optimal kinds of conditions we needed for the cows to be in to have the optimal kind of milk, to have clean the cows, super rapidly, super cold milk, and store it well. And with lots of hot water and everything else. So this came as a result of 17 years of exhaustive work we did milking cows here and serving the Rama consumers and doing the testing and everything. We took all that, made it do a long list of things we wanted to do better, engineered it, and built it. And we did not build that barn. I had it built by a right, commercial. Right. But, sure. but at the same time, it's fully permitted and everything. We were the ones that sat around for a year and a half, two years to design it to make sure it had all the elements. It has a couple of showers. It has an automatic shower, which showers the cows, which they love here in California because it's so hot. From they, the bottom. Yeah. It, it rinses the And water. as a result, guess what? We don't have any belly flies on our cows because the worms can't, the, the, uh, what do you call it, the eggs can't um, mm-hmm. implant and, and breed in the, in the belly of the cows. So they've got that. They're staying clean. That's not terribly unique. Other farms have that too. But then we have a second area where the cows can stand. You actually physically look at them and wash them again if there's any manure anywhere near them. Uh, right before they get milked. So there's a, there's a parlor, it's a pre-parlor, and then they go into the proper parlor where they're actually very clean at that time, where they have their udders completely prepared and dried to make sure that they're ready to go, uh, which is done literally. We're milking 10 hours a day, twice a day, so 20 hours a day, we're milking those cows out there. But they come in in batches of 200 at a time, so we're not milking all 900 at a time. We're, we're producing close to 50,000 gallons of milk a week, and more than 50% of that's going into a bottle. The rest of it's making butter, cream, cheese, kefir, and other products are all raw, always, mm-hmm. and being served in over 500 stores throughout California, and a couple thousand stores nationally in our cheese. Although, unfortunately, we're not able to get enough cheese out because they're always running out of cheese because everybody likes our truly raw cheese. It's not fake raw. This it's wanna, actually wanna, raw cheese. I want to talk about that. So, yeah, let's talk about truly raw cheese. So... I got to see, well, first of all, I want to say that I got to see the milking process. And I got to milk those cows by hand yesterday and see how clean their udders are. And I got to, one of the things that was interesting that Kaylee, your daughter, was showing me on the tour was that when they're cleaning the udders of these cows, <clears throat> the, the milkmen, the guys over there who are super cool and nice, 
um, they have individual rags for every single cow. Right. And so they're cleaning one cow's udders, they have a rag, they have another rag for the next cow. There's so much intentionality around the process there. And then all of that milk is collected and put into these stainless steel tanks, um, which I think are 6,000 6, gallon tanks. And if I'm understanding the process correctly, it's held there for a day while it's tested. That's a batch. That's a batch. And that's testing. So it's Correct. tested there. It, it receives a, a born on date and has a, a certificate of analysis that knows what's in that particular 6,000 gallons of milk. It becomes a batch. It's identified as pathogen free. Because, and you said it's tested. There's this representative sampling yes. you're telling me about yes. where there is a two minutes process where you are drawing milk out of that 6,000 gallons as it is being circulated. Exactly. And as it is being circulated, it allows a little bit of milk from all over the tank right. to get into your test tube. And then you're looking for levels of coliforms, coliforms. levels of bacteria, levels of harmful bacteria, levels of representative well, harmful coliforms bacteria. Coliforms aren't ha ha harmful, but what they are is indicators right. of perhaps some unsanitary condition. Coliforms by themselves are fine, yeah. but they're an indicator that maybe something's not clean, there's a biofilm or something going on. So we watch that. That's kind of the watching for the haystack conditions, which might indicate there's a needle in the haystack. That's what the coliforms are. The needles of the haystack are the pathogens. Right. And so we test for pathogens as well on each batch. So you got pathogens and conditions double-checked every time. And then it goes, after, it's been, after a day there where it's kind of waiting to get the representative results back, it's clean, it goes to the creamery, and then cheese is made. One of the things. Yes, and, and I will say that we are pioneering, and uh, it will be something that's um, available to other raw milk producers as well, but we are the pioneering leader on this. To that, that eight to 24-hour period will be shrunk to three hours in the next six months. Wow. The, path, the rapidness of approved testing for pathogens is on a rapid scale right now to change. It's less expensive, it's more accurate, and it's quicker. So... The speed of technology is helping us. That's great. And I want to back up one moment because you told me something that I thought was amazing. That when the milk comes out of the cow's udder, just like when the milk comes out of a mom's breast, yes. it's body temperature. Has to be. 99 <laughs> degrees. It's not refrigerated in the breast. No. Mom would be very upset. It yeah. would not be good. And then within <laughs> two minutes of leaving that udder, it, it is chilled to 37 degrees. 99 degrees down to the mid-30s. Mid-30s. We're targeting 35 or so. Within two Within minutes. two minutes. So super clean, super quick, super cold. And that's what gives you that 21-day shelf life. And it also does other things. If for some weird reason, and I haven't seen it happen, but if it was to happen, that a pathogen was to escape and get into that milk, we do know that, that Campylobacter, Salmonella, and E. coli, those three pathogens, die off in cold mm. over 14 days. They, they die off by one to two logs, 10 to the one, 10 to the two, over 14 days, they don't grow. Right. So cold chilling is actually a critical control. And that's why we always say, keep it cold, keep it cold. If you don't want to keep it cold, fine, acidify it. Right. With but the beer. bottom line is we are pathogen free to begin with, but this is just a, another layer of safety as well. Just knowing the physiology and what happens with, uh, you know, bacteria double their count every 22 minutes at body temperature. Right. So, I mean, they are going to become kefir like quick. Right. Double, 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 double every 22 minutes at 80, 90 degrees. So that's why we keep it really cold, where it basically puts it to sleep, puts the bacteria to sleep. You still have the diversity of beneficial bacteria right. at low levels, and that's why it's fresh milk for, for several weeks. And it was interesting to me that there, you were telling me there are over 700 species of bacteria yes. that are beneficial. This is like, I mean, I've never seen a probiotic. There's no comparison between a probiotic capsule on the shelf and a raw milk product like this. No. But there are over 700 species of bacteria in a raw milk. I will say this particular bottle 
I have no idea what the diversity is. But I do know this. When you sample this bottle and every other bottle, the average is about 700 different kinds of bacteria over time you find in a bottle of milk. And that's Because similar. it's so, it's wild. Right, it's, it's wild. It's, it's not, in fact, Dr. Bruce German, we must rewild our gut. Right. Not my quote, Dr. Bruce German, who I very much respect from the International Milk Genomics Consortium at UC Davis. Um, we must rewild our gut. He means bring on the diversity of bacteria. Occupy all the spaces with beneficial bacteria or those that are supposed to be there. Maybe they're not, they're, the pseudomonas may not be terribly beneficial, but they are occupiers of the gut that, are, that play a wonderful role. And so do that and then feed them well. Now you don't have any spaces for bad bacteria. Right. Or if you do, exactly. they are very, very low levels. And you dominate by goodness. That's what we talked about earlier. The yes. Fact that you have to yes. not get rid of the bacteria. You have to crowd them out with the good ones. Thank you. Exactly. That's an important piece. Exactly. So within two minutes, it's cold. It's tested. It's brought to the creamery. And then the cheese is made. The kefir is made. But let's talk about cheese because yeah. this was educational to me. That I've been to the grocery stores. Yeah. And in my social media, I've talked about the fact that raw cheese is great because raw cheese is available in most states, or at least cheese, it's legal in America. Cheese yep. that says raw on the label. Yeah. But tell me about raw cheese and what real raw cheese is. When we started more. making raw cheeses, cheeses back in 2000, 2001, um, we wanted it to be a raw product. We wanted it to be live. We wanted it to have these benefits of raw milk. Right. And it's interesting because. We realized the more research we did was raw was not defined by law. Pasteurization was, but raw was not. Now, in Canada, they do something called thermalized, which is, defines it a little bit more clearly. But in the United States, we don't have that. So if you don't own a pasteurizer license, which is a permit you have to get and be trained to actually own, and that pasteurization process is certified, if you don't own that, you don't have that, you're not expected for it, you can do whatever you want in the milk, and it's not pasteurized. Even if the milk was brought up above the temperature of the pasteurization, it's still raw because it ain't pasteurized because that's a certified process. So you got all these guys going out there buying cheap milk. And because the market is hot for raw, we're going to cook it a little bit because they have to because the cheap milk has very high levels of bacteria and pathogens and all kinds of stuff. They got to bring it up pretty high because the cultures they add won't work. Right. It's the, they're displaced. They're outcompeted by the junk that's in the garbage milk. We use super clean raw milk to make our cheese. The cultures work fantastically. We don't heat anything. But when you've got these guys saying, I want to make more money, I call it raw, they may take that milk to 140 degrees, 150 degrees, 160, and call it raw because it's not defined. And that's not truly raw. We make a truly raw cheese, which is exceptional world because we're using the kind of milk for human consumption, pathogen-free, delicious, very clean raw milk with the addition of cultures to make cheddar cheeses and other things. Um, and that's quite a paradigm shift. So it's truly raw, never been above 100 degrees body temperature in its life of being made. So all the enzymes are there, the proteins are there, bioavailability, everything's there just like Mother Nature's blueprint. And if I call other producers and say, <laughs> and say, what is your vat temperature? Because I saw the vat, I saw the cheese river at the creamery. It reminds me of like Willy Wonka type stuff, right? It's, it's really pretty cool. And I got, to, I got to taste curds that were made from that cheese. And, and that, that vat, never goes above 100-ish degrees Fahrenheit. So if I call other producers and ask, what is your vat temperature on your raw cheese? They won't tell me. Well, here's the first thing. How do you call that other producer? I don't even know. How would you get the number yeah. to talk to the guy? If you call the 1-800 number, you're going to get some secretary that says, uh, I don't know, or I don't know how to get that, or that's located in another state, or God knows what. If you can get hold of the cheese maker and say, what's your vat temperature? And they call it raw. If they hang up on you, you know they've got a problem. And I've had that happen to me. Like, I don't want to talk to you. 
because they're cooking their milk. Or they're very proud of it, like we are. And they say, we make a truly raw cheese, or they'll use some other definition. And we make, there's some fantastic cheese makers in Oregon that do that. Right. So we're not the only ones in the world. We are the only ones I'm aware of that use raw milk for human consumption in our cheese making. There are other uh, cheese makers that do a, do a truly raw, but you've got to dig for them and find them because they're not as common as you think. And on your packaging, I think it says, you know, never heated above 100, 102, 102 degrees. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. And so what's fascinating about this conversation, it kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier, is that the, some of the benefits, at least in the whey protein, appear to be lost when you heat it above 147 148, five, yeah, yeah. degrees Fahrenheit. And that, to me, is very interesting. And there are so many other benefits in raw milk beyond the whey protein, but just that benefit of whey protein, which looks to be perhaps one of the factors associated with lower rates of asthma, eczema, allergy in kids who grow up drinking raw milk on or off farms, that is lost in 147. So if you're thinking that you're eating a raw cheese or giving a raw cheese to your kids, and that's a good thing, and that vat has gone above 147, you've lost that benefit. Correct. Which is why it's so important to have better truth in labeling in these cases. And, and the, another thing, it, it's really interesting to note that raw whey protein is mandated to be pasteurized in America. Really? In my opinion, it, it's, it's, it's a travesty because you're losing such an incredibly valuable component wow. that's Mother Nature's gift to control our allergies. Uh, it's really something. There's another thing also, Dr. J.P. Lyle has talked about the uh, French paradox effect and cheeses in Europe, or in mostly in, in, in France, having the alkaline phosphatase enzyme right. present. And the alkaline phosphatase is a very powerful anti-inflammatory enzyme. Well, interesting thing about that is the test for effective pasteurization is the total annihilation right. of alkaline phosphatase. Right. So we, <laughs> you can see the darkness of this in terms of the benefits being destroyed by our process. Yes, yes. So one of the other things that I think is amazing about raw milk, and on the YouTube video, we're going to have to put this picture up, is that, and this is just anecdotal, but people have done experiments with mold. I mean, your daughter showed me a video that you posted on your social media of you, you were digging out back here for a renovation to your house, and you found a container of butter. My dog had buried it, I was it 12 years ago? I, how many years? Uh, it was like forever ago. Yeah, it was a previous label, and the date code was barely discernible. It's like many, many years ago. Is it okay if we put a little bit of that into, yeah, this, into sure. this video? So we'll, we'll, we'll put a little bit of that into this video so people can see it. But, you know, you, you pulled this, this butter, which is probably 10 years old. It was in a butter tub. Yeah. 10 years old. Yeah. And it wasn't moldy. No. You opened it and it wasn't no. moldy. No. And you tasted it. Actually, it had a scent. It was slightly sweet. It had gone through some kind of a preserving process, which I don't understand completely. But it was butter, which is mostly fat. Right. And it had been in the ground, a foot underground. Right. Our dog had buried it. And I ate some and I didn't die. Did you feel anything bad? No, I didn't eat the whole thing, but I ate some of it. It was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Nature has a way of preserving itself in natural forms that we really can't wrap our brain around. And there's a, there's a picture online of someone who did an experiment. Again, not a controlled experiment, but pretty interesting. And he had raw milk, and he had pasteurized milk, and he had a couple, three or four different, he had probably five different jars. Yep. And I forget how old they were. Do you guys remember how old those jars were in that photograph? Maybe four or five months old. And you can see the top of the jars. And every single jar of that pasteurized milk is moldy. Correct. But after four or five months, and somebody can fact check me on that number, the raw milk was not moldy. Correct. Correct. That, it is, that is preventing the growth of mold. And this Correct. is exactly what we're talking about, that a fungal colony cannot grow in a raw milk product because of do well. all the other things in there that are preventing its growth. That is a miracle in nature in my Remember, opinion. Remember, nurses, directs, and protects. 
protects. You know, babies, if they were susceptible to every little thing that came along, they'd both, we'd all be dead. Right. So there's an incredible matrix of this cornucopia of life that's infinite, that's only born by the, the generational pressures of only the best survives and the, and, the, and the bad dies off. Over, God knows, pick your number, 100,000, 200,000, a million years of evolution that optimized mammalian first food of life. And that's lost on modern science on the marketing side. I don't think it's lost on the, on the actual researchers. I think the, the, the researchers actually really appreciate that. In fact, I was in Sydney, Australia a few years back at the International Multinomies Consortium, and Dr. German said, I want all you guys, you guys are socially kind of not talking to each other. Get together. Get together and talk to each other. So I wasn't a researcher. I was just the farmer in the room. I went up to several researchers and went up to one and I said, hey, tell me where you're coming from. What's going on? What brought you down to Sydney? And one was in, from um, Iowa, and another was from Utah, another was from Texas, and one was from California. And a chick, I, I went and picked on the young females, kind of fun. And uh, I said, well, I'm here to do this. I said, great. I said, what kind of milk do you drink? Don't tell anybody I drink raw milk. All four people said that, but they would never speak of it. They knew better. They knew what they were doing. They knew the technology. They knew the science but they'd lose the grant if they spoke of it. And I tell you, that is so disruptive because how are we supposed as a, as a population, as a, as a culture, as a people, supposed to do better if we don't know better? Yeah. So you have great science and it's kept down because of some other stupid interest that wants to make money. Yeah, this happens all the time. It's horrible. It happens all the we time. We can only do better if we know better. That's why we, we say this is an important week. We don't sell raw milk. We teach raw milk. I love why that. would anybody ever want to buy raw milk if they didn't know what it was and what it was about? So I, I, I don't even talk about selling raw milk. I just teach the immune system. I talk about first food of life. I talk about what raw milk does for babies, what raw milk is. You make your own choice. You do what you want to do. And I think if people try different types of milk, they'll see the difference. Well, the number it. one thing, the number one thing we pull our customers, why do you drink raw milk? Number one, it's delicious. It number one, it, it tastes, tastes really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I said this in the introduction to the podcast, but there is no financial incentive here for me. I'm not, you're not, you know, you're not paying me to do this podcast. There's, I'm doing this because I believe in raw milk and because I wanted to showcase what you guys are doing here and your information. So this, there's no, there's no financial. Uh, I saw you pouring over for the last 36 hours, PubMed articles, pouring over them as an MD, board supervised to practice in California, doing what MDs do, and that is going to the most rigorous archive on earth, which is PubMed, looking at peer-reviewed articles, looking at the data, and saying, can I support an opinion by this? I saw you do that, so high five and respect to you, because I love doing that myself, but to see someone else sharing that joy of, wow, what I believe is supported by straight-up straight hard science is fantastic, so good job. Thank you. I, I mean, I, a, a lot of what I believe is sort of based in an evolutionary ancestral perspective, and then it's, um, it's interesting to me and encouraging when I can consistently find science that supports those perspectives because it makes it, it, it just makes me think, okay. It validates you. It yeah. validates it. And it, I think it also helps me think about a better way to communicate it to people because I think that in the health space, it's very confusing for a health consumer, quote unquote. I've, I've seen people comment that on my YouTube videos, on my Instagram, because they'll send me something from a plant-based vegan website, which directly contradicts what I say. Something that says meat acidifies the kidneys and is bad for your body or whatever. Cow's milk is inflammatory. And, you know, and I think, okay, I understand why consumers are confused. There's a lot of conflicting information out there. But what my hope is that 
I can give people some evidence to support the ideas that I'm sharing with them and help make them curious enough to do their own research, but also give them a framework and share with them the framework that I use to think about these things, Sure. which is that the things that we've done historically, evolutionarily as humans, and this is blending medicine with anthropology and archaeology, yep. are probably good for us as humans. <laughs> well, we wouldn't be here today. <laughs> yeah, and consistently when we vary from those things, and that variance might be over the last 3,000 years or 2,000 years or the last 100 years of pasteurizing milk, we get sick. And so yep. for me, that's so simple. It, it doesn't need to be complex. I don't think health, I don't think medicine needs to be complex. It's just think about, I think about, and I would encourage people to think about this if they believe this paradigm holds true for them. Think about what humans did 20, 30, 40,000 years ago, which is why it was so valuable for me to go visit the Hadza because they're really yes. the best time capsule we have that I've ever seen. It's not a perfect time capsule, but it's pretty darn good. And when you look at that, and when you think about what humans did 30,000 years ago intuitively, it doesn't take much to realize, oh, we would have eaten meat. We would have hunted. Sure. We would have eaten the whole animal. Yep. The eyeballs, the pancreas, the, the adrenals, yeah. the adrenals, the testicles, yeah. the heart, the liver. Would have eaten the meat. We would have eaten the brain. We would have had raw. The American milk. Indians did that. The first yeah. thing they did with eat the organs. Would have had raw milk if we were smart enough to domesticate the yeah. animals. When fruit was in season, you bet we were eating a piece of a fruit that was colorful and sweet. Yeah. Yeah. If we could find a beehive, we were eating honey. And I think that's a pretty good framework for people. Just without any need to look at the literature, the intuition there Correct. Is, is aligned, I think, for me. And so it's really cool when there is evidence to support that. Of course, people would say, oh, there's evidence that goes against that. And that's where I think the nuance in scientific studies comes in. And we can think about which studies are valid and which are not. And that gets a little technical for people. But there's a lot of evidence to support that way of life with raw milk being at the center of it. And I think so valuable for the gut. I think one of the things that you can remind those that are just into vegetables in a strict vegan environment is that raw fats and breast milk come from vegan moms. And that's there for a reason. That all of us have that raw fat to build the brain. Right. To the building blocks of life are all in there. The, the elements are there. The fats, the proteins, those are animal proteins. Those are not vegetable proteins. Those are not vegetable fats. Those are animal proteins that come from breast milk as the perfected, optimal first food of life that for the first year can be used exclusively without anything else to build a brain that works and a nervous system that works, Schwann cells that are you know, insulating nerves and all the things that are supposed to happen. Remember that serotonin and dopamine are synthesized in the gut and they go to the brain, you know, gut brain access, gut lung access, all these things um, and the strict vegans, some don't do very well. They have a hard time and we have a lot of people that recovered from strictly being on vegetables and gone and added fats and, and, and animal meats and and, so, and they rejoice. Yeah, I saw this. They feel so much better. They rejoice. Their kids do better. Everybody's happier. I They're agree. happy. Why? Serotonin's being made. Dopamine's being made. Their guts work and the fats are there. I mean, it's okay. the model of life. Yeah. It's the blueprints of life. I heard this. Uh, as much as I heard <clears throat> that raw milk was beneficial for the gut at these Erewhon meet and greets, I heard from a number of vegans who were feeling so much better when they'd included animal Correct. foods in their diet. Correct. And, you know, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really incredible and really striking. And, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of that, that this company that I found, Heart and Soil, that makes the desiccated organs did, was we made this documentary about, about the value of animal foods in pregnancy. And so that's called Nourish. It's on YouTube. People can go watch that. But it's so striking to see how different a placenta looks between a vegetarian or vegan mom and a mom who eats animal-based with meat and organs and raw dairy. And, and 
I mean, if you talk to any midwife, they'll tell you there's difference in the health of the placenta. And sure. <laughs> sadly, that probably is reflected in the way the baby's been nourished. And it, it, you, make, you make such an interesting point that even a vegan mom is going to make animal proteins for her baby. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so yes. thank God, <laughs> yeah. thank God that a, that a baby born to a vegan mother is not vegan. <laughs> Please nurse your babies. Yeah. It's not vegan while they're getting breastfed. No. And then sadly <laughs> may become vegan if they don't give that, that child animal foods. Well, we've seen parents in jail for giving vegan foods to children because the brain damage that occurs. And there's been so kids that have died. To add back there's the been kids that have died. And we know yes. that it's not good for mom and that mom's nutrition is depleted if they don't have animal foods. And so it's, it's, there's no question in my mind regarding that. I want to wrap up the podcast in a moment, but I want you to tell me about milk fats and the milk fat globule and the benefits of butter. 60% of the bioactive components, those are the active enzymes, the wonderful things that are alive in milk are carried on the fat globule 60%. This doesn't come from my mouth. This is Dr. Bruce German, last mm -hmm. year's IMGC. He knows. He's the guy who researches the genomics and, and uh, uh, all the lipidomics and proteomics and everything of milk and has all the researchers that work with him at UC Davis. And there's other researchers around the world that say the same thing. So what's that say about skim milk? Not much, huh? The fat is where it's at. Uh, the gut is the largest immune system organ of the body. If you think about milk, we're running... You can see the butterfat line right there. Bring about 4% yeah. butter fat in that milk right there, 4%. Uh, it can go 5% sometimes during the year, especially in the spring. That's what's carrying the bioactive elements is that butter fat, 60% of it. Yes, there's some in the other point, but 60%. Cream, 40% butter fat. So a tremendous load of bioactives, which are healing, anti-inflammatory, fantastic for the gut and brain are being carried on 40% in cream. That's why cream is crazy good. It makes you feel good, and it tastes delicious. Butter fat, our butter has 85 to 87% butter fat. The bioactive elements are through the roof. So butter is incredibly nourishing for the brain, nourishing for the gut. Butyric acid's created in the lower gut. All those things are really butyrate. Uh, so you can see that the fat is where it's at. It really, really is. And raw milk obviously has four. Cream has 40 and butterfat has 47, what, 87%. So it's, that's where it's at. Eat more butter. <laughs> like, eat more good butter, absolutely. Eat more, eat more raw butter. And, you know, we, I saw the raw cream at the creamery yesterday. And we're going to go to the creamery after this podcast, and I'm going to get to see the butter being churned. Yeah. And I can't wait because it's just, I think that when I grew up, my dad was a doctor. My mom's a nurse. We had 2% maybe on if we were splurging. Sure. Most of the time I had skim milk growing up. Just my anecdote, I had asthma, I had eczema, I had allergies. I don't have any. By the way, stuff. I didn't say that. The good doctor did. Thanks for just telling <laughs> I had I had all those things as a kid. I don't have that stuff anymore. You know, I think getting rid of vegetables helped a lot with that. But certainly raw milk has helped in my life as well in massive, massive ways. So I just, I'm so excited that we can begin to talk about this. 13 children a day die in America right here in America from asthma on proper Western medicine care. Right. With EpiPens and inhalers and corticosteroids and all the other good garbage. That get. Let me tell you, wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to have farmers thrive and children no longer die? Oh Isn't that God. beautiful? I think that's what we're all working for. That's know? the paradigm. In 1961, 6% of our GMP was on medical care. Now it's exceeding 20. We're going the wrong way quick. We don't have enough nurses to keep us in hospitals. We can't afford this. We have to start preventing. It's farmers over pharmacies. It's prevention. Yes, we need modern medicine. Yes, we need all these fancy drugs and surgeries. You get shot, you want to have a great trauma surgeon, you know? 
Western medicine is fantastic, but has a place. Yeah. And it's after we've nourished our country through good whole food nutrition. Man, you're doing God's work. You are too, my friend. You are too. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate what you're doing at the farm. I feel the same. I think that like this is, I mean, you know, I grew up going to church and I feel like this place is a temple, you know? This is like... It's blessed by a lot of people that appreciate it and support it. This so. is a, I mean, this is a healing place for humans, Thank you know? You. In some religions, they go to Mecca. In some religions, they go to Jerusalem. You know, in, in, you know, in my current religion, I come to farms like this, and this is, this is a special place. So thank you for doing this. It's, it's, this it's holy, hollowed ground in yeah, its Yeah, this way. really is, man. This really is. So thank you for doing this really special work. I appreciate you so much. Well, thank you for your work, buddy. Man, thank you so much. All right.